This episode of the Choral Project's No Baton Needed podcast features a conversation with composer, conductor, and 2020 Grammy Award nominee, Jake Runnestead. Before we listen in, if you're in the Bay Area and hear this episode before December 19th, 2021, the Choral Project will have two in-person performances that day of Winter's Gifts, the annual winter concert with the San Jose Chamber Orchestra. Visit choralproject.org to purchase tickets. Take it away, Daniel. So, Jake, welcome to the Coral Projects podcast, No Baton Needed. I'm really excited to interview you because I've been such a fan of your music for a long time, and every time I hear a new work, it just changes my life for the better again. You're, you're oh, just thanks. such a gift, so it's a real thrill to have you here. So let's just dive right in. Okay. You've composed a lot of works for an array of musical genres, including wind ensemble, chorus, orchestra, chamber ensemble, opera. Et cetera. Is there a genre you haven't composed for that's either in the works or that you're longing to do? You know, I tend to really love concert music and especially large ensemble music. So I'm drawn to, you know, wind ensemble, choral music, opera, these bigger forms. I think I really love the community aspect of them. You know, it requires so many people coming together in a beautiful way. And so I, I tend to just love working with those groups, especially. I think within those ensembles there are you know pieces that i want to write but uh yeah i don't know that there's you know any sort of other genre necessarily that i'd you know i'd like to write for at the moment <laughs> so those are your go-tos are working they're scratching that itch. except maybe 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 tuba quintet with um a banjo desk camp that would be nice <laughs> Well, who doesn't want to hear that? I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and your work has often been referred to as highly imaginative, stirring it, uplifting, moving. These are actually quotes that we found. And of course, we agree with this. But how would you describe your work? Oh, that's the worst question to ask a composer. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I always find it so difficult to talk about my music with words. And I feel like they never do justice to what I'm trying to say. And that's why I write music, so I can express it that way. But I think that what I hope my music does is communicates what it's like to be alive in the world today in a compelling manner. And I, that sounds really broad, but I hope that it's, it's music that anyone could listen to and get something from and not necessarily has to be trained in any sort of stylistic traditions or anything like that but that they can just grab something right away. And then if they want, they can also dig more deeply and explore it and peel back layers and find more meanings within it. So it's trying to find that balance between the head and the heart and complexity and simplicity, all of, all of those things. So that's, that's the balance that I try to find. And when you say that you want your music to speak to what it's like to be alive now, are you specifically talking about what it's like to be alive in the 21st century or just what it's like to be a human being? Well, I, I don't know that I can speak to what it's like to be a bird. So I guess probably probably within the realm of this species. And, and yeah, I think right now, you know, I, I work with, like in choral music, I work with texts from the past, but I think it's also kind of contextualizing things in the present, given the musical language. You know, I'm not necessarily writing in 17th century style, but, you know, maybe I might use a text from that time period. But 
especially for choral music, trying to make sure that I'm illuminating the text, that I'm not forcing my music upon the words, but I'm really trying to figure out what are these words saying? How do I then use music to lift them up, to give wings to them, to, to allow them to inform the sounds so that it can be communicated to people you know, living right now? The reason why I was asking is what's interesting is that music, and especially music with the text, but music in general can live in multiple times and space that at the time it's written, it's doing what it is that you're wanting to do. You're wanting to illuminate the human condition and what it's like to be with a community. You're in the audience, you see your fellow people there, you're all being moved by the same thing. But then it also has this function where it serves as a time capsule where years later, somebody can revisit that work and not only dip their toe in a time in the past, but then also realize that people are still people. They're still contending with the same big people questions, the same human questions. So that's kind of why I was asking you, and you totally touched on it. But I I think it's fascinating that you can only experience it in time, but then by experiencing it, it also can pull you out of time. It can put you in another place. So it's sort of a, a divine little craft. Yeah, I think that's what's so compelling about you know, music. And, and, and really, music doesn't exist except in the moment when the air is vibrating. You know, and it's not like visual art where it's like a tangible object. And I think there's something really powerful about that idea that you hear it in the moment, the exact moment, but then it's gone. And yet, it can linger in us, you know, the impact of it. And it can linger for years. And I think that's just, it's a miracle, truly. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's incredibly profound. Do you have a memory of a particular iconic piece that still lives with you when you think about it, that your life turned a corner at that moment? I got to sing Dominic Argento's Walden Pond, with Dale Worland conducting and Dominic Argento sitting in the audience. And of course, you know, I had the whole thing memorized. And so I was just watching Dale and Dominic and just going back and forth during the performance and was just weeping throughout. I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite, favorite pieces of all time. And so that, that piece lives deep, deep inside of me. And uh, that was just such a special experience. I'm super envious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, and regarding your work, can you talk to us a little bit about your process of how you create music? Sure. I think I'll use the choral context since that's the kind of central idea of this podcast. So with choral music, pretty much everything I write now is commissioned. And so sometimes I'm given a theme or if not a theme, a duration, an instrumentation, knowing the the level ability level of the ensemble or their interests or where they're from what's happening in their community i make sure that i'm completely informed about the context surrounding this collaboration because i want it to be a positive experience for everyone involved you know i want to make sure that the piece that i give them engages them in a meaningful way challenges them just enough um, so that it doesn't defeat them but it also lifts them in some way And then, you know, depending on where they live or what's going on in their community, that impacts what I choose to write about. And so if if I'm given a theme, then I begin to look for words on that theme. And I'm really, really, really picky. And this process takes a really long time because not all words can and should be set to music. There are many that are either 
too beautiful and musical on their own, or they're clunky, or it just doesn't sing well. And so, yeah, it takes me a long time to pick just the right words. And then once I've got those, it's then figuring out the context behind the words. So who wrote these words? When did they write them? How did they write them? What was going on in their life at that time, in the world at that time? You know, what's the entire historical, cultural, technological context behind those words? It's a huge difference if, you know, the words were a tweet or if they were scratched on the wall of a concentration camp or it was a a letter found lying in the street. You know, all of these things affect the way that I interpret these words. So I spent a long time with those. And then once I feel like I have a grasp of them and they've dictated to me some sort of a, a sonic landscape, a world, a dramatic world, then I begin to improvise singing those words within that landscape, within that dramatic world, just to find the right way in. And so it always begins with the text and it always begins with the voice for me. And I'll, you know, sit at the piano too and improvise and and play and sing. And, And usually one of the first things I do once I'm like ready to write is I go to my phone and I start the voice memos uh, recorder and then I just improvise my way through the entire piece. Like whatever happens, happens. Don't judge it. Don't worry about it. Just go for it. And I find that there's a certain gut response that I have that I find is really, really helpful in that process. And so, you know, it's not perfect by any means and and most of it is not (laughs) what stays. But there are some little morsels sometimes that appear and I'll grab onto those and use those in the piece. So once I go through that, then I keep refining and keep going through ideas and singing through everything and finding the right gestures and, uh, you know, honing and editing and imagining. (laughs) You know, it's this kind of cyclical process that gradually gets me closer and closer to what the true essence of the piece is. And when you're selecting a text, you've only set in English, correct? You haven't set in other languages? Uh, I've set in um, Spanish and Somali. Uh, I've done some Latin. Oh, okay. Then I need to do a little more homework. Look at some (laughs) of your other things. So let's talk about your childhood and your education. I understand you taught yourself how to play the piano? Pretty much. I took lessons for like a year in third grade. And uh, the story my parents love to tell is that, you know, because I I played by ear as a kid. So that's really how I started, as I'd hear something on the radio and I'd plunk it out at the piano or teach myself pop songs. And so in third grade, I went into my lesson one week. And, you know, the week before, the teacher would play through the piece and, you know, I'd hear that. And so I went home and I'd kind of figure it out by ear and then went to my, my next lesson. I put the book up on the piano and played through my piece and my teacher said that was very good Jake but you're on the wrong page (laughs) because I wasn't reading the music piano and uh, so yeah I just I really hated having to do that structured way of it was terrible I just hated it so you know I'd practice what I had to do and then for hours I would just improvise and do my own thing so you know sometimes I wish that I stuck with the lessons but also would I be doing what I'm doing now if I had stuck with the lessons? So, you know, I wish I had better piano technique. <laughs> it's not great. But yeah, that's kind of how I started, just a lot of improvisation. How did you discover and develop your interest for the piano? Uh, we just had a piano at home, and I don't even remember. Just as a kid, you know, plunking around on it, and 
probably learning a very simple one-handed with one finger song and then it just kept growing and growing maybe it was a natural affinity or you know my parents didn't necessarily push it on me I think it was something that because it was there I just wanted to discover it and about how old were you do you remember when you first started oh gosh yeah I don't know um pretty young six seven I don't know because I was playing a little bit before you know I took in third grade and then just kind of kept going from there now, our producer read somewhere that one of the ways you taught yourself how to play the piano is by copying music from the radio. Do you remember the first song you taught yourself how to play or one of the favorites from those early years? Yeah, I, I don't remember the first. I remember, um, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of like way, way, way back. I'm sure it was like little melodies, probably like Christmas songs or something. But I remember early on, I taught myself the entertainer, the Scott Joplin tune. And, and it was a very simple version. And I remember in like one of my first lessons, the teacher showed me a little bit more complex way and it was really cool. So I was like, oh yeah, look at that. That's awesome. So I'll keep doing that. So I, that was when I was early on. And I remember my music teacher in school for one of our early performances, she had me play the entertainer and then all the rest of the students did this weird cup stacking rhythm thing. <laughs> but like it was my first kind of solo you know experience performing i was like okay why not (laughs) so one of the themes that we're dialing into this season is the future of choral arts which is one of the reasons why we wanted to speak with you what names come to mind when you think about the evolution of choral music and its future gosh i mean everybody (laughs) like i think we might go to some of the big name figures but it's really there are so many voices so many conductors so many singers that are a part of this evolution that continue to make it happen and make it change and grow yeah i don't know that that i could name specifics but i think that post pandemic we're really in a, a fascinating position to figure out what choral music means to us what it is what we're going to do with it now that we are starting to be able to do it again in a somewhat normal way and figure out who can sing choral music, what traditions of choral music do we consider like the standard? Because I think in this country, there's been one idea of it that's been the general idea, the sense of what choral music is, which is a really niche idea compared to what's happening in the rest of the world. So as far as what maybe I think is going to happen or I'd like to see happen is more inclusive of various singing styles throughout the world. You know, I think that in the U.S., in academia, there's this focus on the bel canto tradition as far as, like, technique, but then adapting that to kind of a Western European sound as far as, you know, kind of coming from the churches in that idea. So, I think that I would love to see us continue to push in exploring what the voice can do outside of that context, incorporating music that allows us to explore those sounds from all over the world. You know, technology has gifted us access to so many different kinds of music that we can engage with, and I think that's an amazing thing. And also to help lift up voices that maybe we haven't heard much of or haven't heard at all. So that's really exciting to me. I think that a strong part of our musical tradition in the U.S. and choral music has come from the church. And I think there's a certain staidness to that, which is not a bad thing. But I think that 
Choral music is gradually becoming more and more of a concert tradition. And so I think if we can borrow more techniques from orchestral music, from, you know, musical theater, you know, these ideas of drama, of romantic gestures, those are things that I'm really interested in, you know, movement, using a space, you know, thinking of it as a performance art, not just sound, not just standing there and, you know, making noise. So I think these are all things that I'm really excited about that I hope continue to grow as we get back into singing again. You're totally speaking my language. <laughs> I, I'm so behind all of that. Cool. A lot of your work addresses and embraces important issues in the human condition, like your work Dreams of the Fallen, which is for viewers who don't know, it's poetry by an Iraq war veteran that explored soldiers' emotional response and a point of view on war. Or your piece, We Can Mend the Sky, which touches on the immigrant experience. And your work, Please Stay, highlighted the stigma around mental illness, depression, and suicide. Do you consider yourself a social activist? That's a big conversation right now. From when I was a kid, my family instilled in me the importance of serving others in some way. Whether that's donating my time, whether that's supporting someone with a meal financially supporting someone or an organization, you know, giving of my time in some way. And so once I began to create music, those worlds started to come together and I saw the impact that music could have and how it can foster compassion, tell someone's story, to help us understand a culture or someone different than us. And so I really became excited about that and doing that with my music. I think that right now, you know, we have many social issues that are really, really important and that we do need to talk about, that we do need to work on, and I'm all for it. What I'm a little afraid of sometimes is when the message or the activism gets in way of the art itself, where the art might be lesser because there's some messages trying to be had. And again, this is not to say that these messages aren't important, because they are. They're incredibly important. But I think that we also just need to be really careful with the way that we are using art in these kinds of messages. Really, that the creation itself is so crucial, and it's really easy to kind of verge on hokiness. And so, you know, I think that for me, it's art first, and we can use the art to help answer questions, to help challenge people's thoughts, to help tell people's stories. But it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, this piece is going to make you feel this and it's going to change your view about, you know, race issues or whatever it might be. And so I think that I'm, I'm interested in exploring those things, but hopefully in a way that's not preachy or hokey, but that really is about telling a story. And maybe through that story, we could somehow be changed. I like the way you said that. When there's any kind of communication going on, especially if what's being communicated is a subject that can be difficult to hear because it's going to challenge things, the delivery system is really important mm. because you want to make sure that the message is hearable. Right. And I think that this sort of mannered way that you were talking about, that this let's hit you over the head with it, the cheese factor, does a disservice to the message. Right. And then... Sometimes even that perspective can just be too narrow if, if you're trying to dictate the audience response too much in the writing, right? then you can leave a lot of people out of the experience. People that need to hear the message are suddenly just turned off to it. Yeah, and that's where metaphor is so crucial. And I think that in some ways, 
our culture is losing the the ability to consider metaphors and understand their meaning. You know, it's like everything is so black and white in our culture these days, and there's very little gray area. And we're, I think we're, yeah, we're losing that concept of metaphor. And to be able to use that in some of these cases, like you said, it allows for a more personalized interpretation of a piece that I think can have a deeper meaning. If you weren't a composer, if you hadn't gone into music, what career path do you think you would have chosen? Well, actually, I went to school to be a high school band director. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, my main instrument is saxophone. That's really what I studied. Oh. And so I don't play anymore, but that was my main gig. So I was going to be a high school band director, but was kind of convinced to really explore the composition thing. And so I ended up that route. But I remember in high school, we had to write papers about potential jobs in the future, like research papers. And I remember I wrote one on being a photographer, and I wrote another on being an architect. So both kind of creative endeavors. So you definitely wouldn't want to do something where your imagination can be stimulated and you can be I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, if it's in your soul, it's in your soul. Have you written anything for choir and like soprano sax descant or anything? I actually haven't. And I'd like to. I'd like to write for choir and sax at some point. I mean, especially if you have a saxophone background. I, yeah. That, that just seems like, well, I will look forward to that piece. Maybe when we commission you. Maybe when we commission you. <laughs> there we go. Be so speaking of another piece of yours that's very close to my heart, and I got to hear the premiere of this, the song And So I Go On. Some of our listeners know because they've heard us sing it in concert, but I thought it would be lovely if you could talk a little bit about that piece, where it came from, the background. It's a powerful and sad story, but also extraordinarily beautiful. So, Yeah. <clears throat> so in um, early 2014, I was at the Western ACDA conference and met two conductors, John Talberg and Herman Aguilar, who were engaged to be married. And both collegiate choral conductors in California. And, you know, like a good composer, I gave them my business card. (laughs) And fast forward to that summer, John was on tour with his Cal State Long Beach choir in um, Europe. And they were performing at a church in Italy. And Hermann came along and sang in the choir. And during one of the performances, Hermann passed out and died in John's arms in the front of the church. And I remember just, you know, seeing about that on social media and hearing about what happened. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that could happen and that it happened to someone that I had just met. It was incredibly sad, incredibly sad and such a huge loss for our musical community. So uh, later on, you know, John was going through Hermann's things and cleaning out his wallet. And, you know, inside he found some cash and some credit cards and one business card, and it was mine. And so John uh, reached out to me and asked if I would write a piece in Hermann's memory, along with Edie Copley, who was at Northern Arizona University and was one of Hermann's main teachers. And so I agreed to write the piece and try to figure out what to say and how to say it. I mean, that's incredibly difficult to try to speak to that loss that I've never experienced. And so I was trying to find the right text. I couldn't find it. So I went to my friend Todd Boss, who's just an incredible poet. And we had collaborated once before this. So this was our second piece. And I asked him if he would write the words. And so Todd created a two-sided poem, the voice of the living and the voice of the one who's passed. 
that goes back and forth for double choir for the piece. And um, it was a really profound experience writing it. I remember very vividly being in tears in my studio just working on it. So I went to California for the premiere and spent time with John and we just hit it off and became pals. And he's now become one of my very, very closest, dearest friends. So it's an incredible gift that that whole experience gave me. And also I know that that gave John, you know, he, he talks about how how much that piece helped him through. And, and I don't know that it was just the music itself, but I think the the experience of his community singing it you know, and giving voice to grief and supporting him through that. I think that's the capital M music that we experience, that we all love, and that changes us. So, yeah, it's a very, very, very special piece. It's one of my favorite compositions, and I actually have experienced a loss like that in my life. So it it speaks very profoundly, and the, the Choral Project was so changed by it. I got to see it at, I think the same time you saw it, at the ACDA convention in Pasadena, where... Edie Copley and John's groups did it combined. And it just, after that was done, I was just a puddle. And then on the heels of that, the next group to come out to perform was Craig Hella Johnson and Consperari doing oh, yeah. Considering Matthew Shepard. Oh my gosh. So it was a very emotional, incredible night. Uh, yeah. Uh, incredible. But such an extraordinary piece. Thank you. And you captured those voices and the compassion that comes with the community that surrounds a person when there's a, a loss like that it's the whole latter part of the piece mm. it's just like this beautiful hug mm. all right i'm trying not to get too emotional <laughs> oh, thank you you recently posted the following question on your facebook page you said choir nerds what are some compelling examples of rage in the choral <laughs> orchestral community and music <laughs> Are you conducting research for a piece about anger or? <laughs> so we were curious about that. I was having a really bad day. No, I'm kidding. Yes, I'm currently working on a very large piece for choir and orchestra. It's 25 to 30 minutes. And the concept is somehow addressing the climate crisis, which really is the biggest issue of our time. And I think there are many ways that people have tried to address it with, you know, just saying, you're all bad, change your ways, we're all going to die, this is terrible. And a lot of people just don't care, and they don't listen to that, and you know that doesn't really get people to change. So Todd Boss, my friend, wrote the text for this, and our concept was to think about, well, how do we kind of turn that on its head, and how do we foster compassion for the earth? And I think in our culture, right, we have this Mother Earth trope that we use. And so the piece is a dramatic monologue of Mother Earth lamenting the loss of humankind, what made us unique, what made us special, how we evolved, 
how we became obsessed with power and progress and it ultimately defeated us, for us to consider what the world would be like without us. And this idea of of our mother losing her children. And so there's a part of the piece that a movement that is about this rage and the storms, the weather events that have been created by this climate change. And so that's what I was kind of just trying to wrap my ear around some examples to get that in my head for some some ideas. I have a an answer of a piece that you should look at. It's by Brent Heisinger, who's a local Bay Area composer. Okay. That he wrote in the early 70s. It's called Statement. It's for a symphonic band. Huh. But it was at a time where there were riots at San Jose State. He taught at San Jose State, and the riots were really getting out of control. And so everybody in the band ultimately starts yelling out their own statements for change. And it, it gets very angry. It's It might be... Interesting thing to look at just referentially. It's a cool piece. Yeah, I'll check it out. Thanks. But your piece that sounds fantastic. Is there a, a premiere slated for this? Is it's been a com- it's a commissioned work? Yeah, it's a true Concord in Tucson. It's going to be premiered at the end of February. And what are the forces? I'm asking for a reason. <laughs> yeah, it's full choir and orchestra, so double winds, full orchestra. All right, that sounds exciting and a kind of a brilliant way to tell that story. If you want somebody to wrap their brain around cataclysmic event then paint them a picture of what it would be like after the event. Right, yeah, I hope so, yeah. All right, totally different direction now. (laughs) Okay. Um, We get into sort of some lighter, playful things. If you organized your iTunes music library by most played songs, what do you think your top three would be? And if you're not sure, then just maybe guess or something. It would probably be some of my own music. Because I'm like, you know, listening back and analyzing and... Yeah, it would probably be that. But lately, I've been listening to a lot of Nahuel Pinisi, who is an Argentinian singer, songwriter, guitarist, who's just absolutely brilliant. So like that's been on repeat for a while now. So definitely check him out. He's so brilliant. I would love to arrange some of his stuff for choir because I think it's it would be really, really cool. How do you spell his first name? N-A-H-U-E-L, Nahuel, and then Penisi. Gosh, what else? I mean, I've been listening to a lot of orchestral music lately, too, just because of this piece. So I'm trying to, you know, get a lot of that into my brain. So a lot of Von Williams C Symphony, because I just adore that piece. And I think it's beautifully written for both choir and orchestra. Yeah, those are just a couple <laughs> a couple things that are up there right now. Are you drawn to the lush orchestrations of like the Von Williams-Holst era? I do love Von Williams. I think he set text so beautifully. And his music is... You know, I think the influence from the folk songs makes it just have gorgeous lines. I love his use of a line. Yeah, I think I do. I love colorful orchestration, you know, more of the kind of romantic British French, but also Barber and, uh, you know, Beethoven. And, you know, there are many. I Well, I'll stop. I could go on and on. This is what happens to me when somebody says, you know, what are your favorites? And then I just start uh-huh. listing, listing yeah, everybody. Yeah, you just keep going and going. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's whatever I'm listening to is my favorite. Uh-huh. Now, have you started making music and collaborating with choruses and other musicians in person post-pandemic? Yes. And how has that been going? I'm- I just had my first premiere in uh, Chicago with the St. Charles Singers. This was the first in-person premiere since the pandemic. And... It was so wonderful. It was just so wonderful. You know, everyone was masked, which was really weird for me because I get in the room and I'm listening and I felt like I was losing my hearing. 
because I was missing so much of the sparkle that we get from the overtones that the masks are, are hiding. So that was weird. So I had to recalibrate my brain to that sound, but it was so nice just to be there and to, you know, this piece I'd been sitting on for two years waiting for the premiere. So it finally happened. So it just feels good to have it in the world and finally have it available. And what was the piece? It's called Cello Songs. I actually just posted the recording on my website. It's four movements. The text is by Todd Boss, uh, my friend, and they're just exquisite little morsels, each poem. Each poem is a different season, and each season is a different exploration of a playing technique of the cello. So the first movement, Summer, is long tones and these kind of sweeping wind-like gestures. Second movement, Autumn, is spiccato, this very fast, you know, uh, kind of playing, which is the fire of autumn. Winter is glissando. The main image is that of a falling, a dead tree that falls in the arms of a living tree. And then spring is pizzicato raindrops, which is a really fun text that I'll speak to you because it's, it's so great. Each wet splat slaps what dirt keeps trapped, like each plucked note knocks at heart's lock shut, <laughs> which is just so much fun. Oh my so Todd gave me a, a, a lot to work with on, on that one. So it's like a bebop tune. Each hot spot stops a dirt keeps trap like each pod note knocks a hard sock shop. It's really fun. Wow. And it's like just running through puddles. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Is it for one singer and cello or is it for an ensemble of cellos and a chorus? Or? It's choir, piano, and cello. How lovely. Yeah. It was fun. You're yeah. very innovative. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So, and now it's time to talk about the baton, you know, in correlation with the name of our podcast. So we ask all our guests about this. You're a conductor and a composer. So we always like to ask, what are your thoughts about the baton? Do you use it? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Do you have a specific brand you prefer? Tell us everything. Uh-huh. I use it when working with larger ensembles, you know, wind ensemble and orchestra. I never use it with choirs. I just prefer to use my hands. But I have a baton that I adore, and it's from Brown Batons. And I don't think they're in business anymore. I got it years ago at the Midwest Clinic when I went as a student back in, I don't know, 2007 or 8 or something like that. And it's, it's incredibly lightweight, and I just I love it. It just feels very, very easy in the hand. So that's one of my go-to batons. I also have, oh, shoot, what's the other one? Uh, Newland, I think it is, with a beautiful kind of multicolored wooden handle. That's a bigger, heavier one, but um, yeah. And is there anything on the horizon for you, aside from the 30-minute work that you mentioned before, are there other upcoming projects that our listeners could enjoy? Yeah, I'll tell you about two that are coming up. These are two premieres that I have. One is for Cantorai in Denver, which is a collaboration with Cantorai, and then also Vocalis, which is a choir in Guatemala City, Guatemala. And the piece is an extended work for choir, string quartet, and marimba, which is the national instrument of Guatemala. And I set poetry by Humberto Acabal, who is a Guatemalan poet, a Quiche Mayan poet, who died just a couple of years ago. And his works, I just completely fell in love with them. They are, I consider him like a Mayan mystic, you know, where there are these little morsels sometimes but just totally pack a punch and are somewhat simple in their language but have so much depth to them i just adore just adore his work and in july i went down to guatemala and visited his home where he lived in momostanango got to meet his mother and his sister and they showed us around his home you know that's exactly as it was when he died two years ago 
got to see his writing studio. We visited his grave with them, and it was just a really profound experience. So I'm looking forward to that premiere in March in Denver. And then the other piece that I have coming up is for the Atlanta Master Chorale, and it's called The Ways of Stars. And this is a setting of writings by Mariah Mitchell, who was one of the most important astronomers in U.S. history in the 19th century, born on Nantucket Island, largely self-educated. She became famous for discovering a comet at a fairly young age and then just became a really important figure in the scientific community at a time when there weren't, you know, there weren't professional astronomers at that time. And when they did become professional, then it was all men and women, of course, were not encouraged to do so. So this piece is from this writing where Mariah talks about when she went to go view the total solar eclipse in 1869. And she was a founding faculty member at Vassar College. And so she took some of her students on a train out to Iowa to view this eclipse. And so it it kind of goes through the preparations and she talks about, you know, the various telescopes that she's using and the glasses and and then what it's like to view that eclipse. And then, you know, what it means to be a woman in science at that point in history when, you know, there was a professor from Harvard who wrote a paper saying that, you know, women shouldn't be educated the same as men because if they use their brains too much, the blood will flow from their uterus to their brain and they'll become sterile. I mean, just outrageous stuff like that. And so, you know, I think this eclipse metaphor is a really important one in her story. And so the pieces for choir, percussion, piano, a one percussionist, piano, and then the choir uses handbells and triangles, and they actually use the space, and the choir actually eclipses the audience throughout the whole piece. So they exit through the back, and <laughs> so I'm really excited for that one. Oh, how wonderful. Well, those sound fantastic. We always finish with a lightning round and just rapid fire questions. So here we go. Okay. Favorite holiday? I like my, my first instinct was to say fall, which is not a holiday. But can we say fall break? Like I just love the fall. Like apple orchards, changing leaves, sweaters. <laughs> it's mine too. Okay. Favorite Thanksgiving dish? Uh, pie. Any particular pie? Oh my God. I just love it all. I mean, I love... I love a good berry pie, but apple pie and pumpkin pie, like, I won't discriminate. I just love pastries. Favorite movie? Uh, the Green Mile. Favorite piece in the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis Sculpture Garden? Oh, um, it's the, the tree. So they have a tree that's filled with, I can't remember how many, 75 wind chimes? Like, massive, big wind chimes. So you stand under this tree, and as the wind blows, it changes. You know, you can move around, and it's just, it's extraordinary. Favorite piece of art you own? I have a photograph that was taken by a dear friend of mine that was a gift as a part of a piece I wrote for her wife and a retirement thing, concert. And it's of the North Shore of Lake Superior. It's a beautiful, beautiful photo. And what's cool is she took it at sunrise, and her technique is she slows the shutter speed ever so slightly. And as she takes the picture, she moves the camera. So it creates a bit of motion on the scene and... It's really beautiful. I love it. And there's a lot of meaning behind it. Favorite author or poet? Uh, I love Todd Boss just because we work together and, and it's such a beautiful collaboration all the time. But I've, I've really also fallen in love with Umberto Acabal. There's so much to learn from his works. Favorite dessert? Uh, pastries. <laughs> like all of them. <laughs> Favorite place in the world? Uh, I'm so bad with favorites. This is hard. I know. 
Uh, there are so many. I mean, I uh, gosh, Lake Superior is really, really special to me up on the North Shore in Minnesota. Favorite scent? Pine. And then you sort of touched on this a little bit, but your favorite donut? Do you have a favorite donut? Uh, yes, the chocolate long john from Blado's Bakery in Winona, Minnesota. Oh, you have a really specific favorite donut. <laughs> Very specific. <laughs> yeah, well, a patri connoisseur. Yes. Well, great. Jake, thank you so much for taking time and letting us talk to you about your craft and music and reminding us of all the wonderful gifts that you've given us. This has been great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. No Baton Needed is hosted by the Coral Project's founder and artistic director, Daniel Hughes. Our executive producer is the Coral Project's marketing director, Wilson Alexander Aguilar. And I, Chris Wilmore, and the executive audio engineer and sometimes host of the podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next month.